Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners, thank you so much for finding the show. Always appreciated uh, that we're hopefully continuing to grow the audience, continuing to grow this show. I'm trying to be consistent, but it's, you know, it's hard. Uh, life sometimes gets in the way, but um, hopefully we are on a regular schedule again and uh, getting to these weekly episodes or as weekly as I can make them. Um, I, I do really appreciate hearing from people in the in the audience you can always feel free to email either counterpunch or you could email me directly my first and last name at gmail.com um always appreciate it either on twitter or facebook any way that you want to um always happy to interact with the audience now uh of course i do my usual song and dance for counterpunch because i think counterpunch is important and i think it's important to support it um i am a supporter i have to say well before i had this podcast i was a supporter of counterpunch i have a subscription to the magazine as well. Um, it's a great way to support Counterpunch to continue that website. I know it's a go-to for me every morning. I'm sure it is for a lot of you guys. Um, you know, you could you could use the PayPal feature. You could pick up the phone and make a donation via phone uh, by calling Becky in the Counterpunch office. Uh, or you could get a subscription to the magazine. That's also a very good way of supporting Counterpunch, particularly now, particularly given what's happening in the left alternative media space, because even some of those trusted sources, I think, uh, in some ways are less trusted now and uh, well let's put it this way there's a lot of distrust in our uh, in our alternative media landscape for various reasons and I think counterpunch is a trusted source particularly uh, on issues of war and peace and on issues of social justice and and environmental justice and things of that nature so uh, hopefully you agree with me and hopefully that's why you're listening to this show also because you love the sound of my voice it is the dulcet tones that bring you back all right uh, let me turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to have Rob Larson on the show. Uh, Rob is first and foremost an economist and an author. Uh, he has a very important book that he wrote just a few years ago called Bleakonomics. Um, he is teaching at Tacoma Community College in Washington State. And most importantly for our purposes today, he is the author of a brand new book, which I could not possibly recommend more highly, Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. And if that uh, if that title and subtitle sounds familiar, it should because it is a reference to a seminal work in uh, the let's call it the right wing neoliberal wing of capitalism. But we'll get into all of that. Rob Larson is on the show today. Rob, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, um, I kind of did it in the intro, sort of introduced a little bit of what we're going to be talking about. But um, since we're since we're kind of beginning at a very general level, talk to me about this book. By the way, congratulations on the book. I think it's a very important uh, work. It's very timely and an important uh, contribution to the conversation about capitalism and about neoliberalism in the right wing. So um, let's begin with a general overview, if we could. Talk to me about capitalism versus freedom the toll road to serfdom. What is the general uh, premise of this book and what drove you to write it now? Right on. Thanks, Eric. Uh, well, the, the book uh, comes from uh, the experience you have when you uh, want to argue about the economic system with uh, young people or uh, especially anybody you know, who's uh, more conservative or libertarian. Very quickly, if you get into it, they'll get to where they're telling you to read a couple of particular books that are really, yeah, highly regarded on the right and uh, you, frequently it's one of these pair of books, right? So yeah, the 
one of them is Capitalism and Freedom uh, by Milton Friedman, his 1960s book uh, that became a lot of the basis for uh, his Reaganite advice to that administration. And then, of course, also uh, The Road to Serfdom, Hayek's book. And so my book uh, has t a title and subtitle purposefully opening the book by making fun of them and trying to subvert their arguments. Uh, the premise of the book is that traditionally we have in the West uh, sort of a couple related concepts of freedom and liberty, you know, that we regard very highly, of course, because freedom is such a crucial part of human life. It's the ability to do what you want and be with whom you want in your, in your life uh, and to become who you want to become. So we care about it a lot, obviously. <laughs> And so in the West, we have a couple concepts of freedom. And the short version you'll get from these books is that capitalism and markets help us to fulfill our freedom and give us the fullest scope, basically, to explore uh, and to develop our freedom relative to other economic systems. The premise of my, my book is if you really dig into this and think about these concepts, capitalism doesn't satisfy any of our ideas of freedom. Well, I certainly agree with you there, but let's dig into that a little bit further because you just mentioned the word, and I think it's obviously central to the entire uh, issue that you're discussing, the word being freedom. And um, one of the interesting things that kind of weaves this book together is this idea of different kinds of freedom, not necessarily competing, although I guess in a sense they are, but distinctly different and yet interrelated concepts of freedom, one of them being freedom from and the other being freedom to. And I'd like if you could explain for the audience a little bit these two different concepts, how they're similar, how they're different, and why it was important to define it in those terms for your book. Yeah, so uh, obviously this is a, you know, a major human concept that people think about a lot. So there's what you discover if you look into it is there's a number of sort of schools and different aspects to the idea of liberty uh, that people sort of delineate in different ways. One uh, very prevalent way of thinking about the subject uh, was developed uh, uh, to sort of create a broad distinction in concepts of freedom. And uh, the sh basic version is we call these positive and negative forms of freedom uh, developed by the uh, famous philosopher Berlin. So if you uh, look on the one hand, we would suggest, or they suggest there's a concept of freedom that they call negative freedom. And that's often the one that's most commonly thought of. It means freedom from, like freedom from the coercion of other people or institutions or something. So if you are able to avoid being subject to uh, you know, powerful institutions that can push you around or tell you what to do, if you can avoid that, we say that you have more negative freedom. Right? On the other hand, uh, they also delineate this concept of positive freedom or positive liberty, which is about being free to do different things, like the uh, freedom to, for example, consume some of society's economic production, the freedom to speak and uh, you know, articulate your views in different ways. And I should say, like, there's a lot of subtlety to those basic uh, pictures there, and a lot of uh, philosophers on the right and on the left politically take different views about them, you know, and some of them don't think that much of this distinction particularly. But I think it's a handy one, especially because if we look at its relevance to economics, what we see is that uh, more conservative economists and more conservative philosophers will say negative freedom is the one we want because it keeps us free from institutions, mainly government in their analysis, from telling you what to do. So if you get your taxes cut or your coal company gets deregulated, that's more negative freedom for you because it's reduced the government's ability to make you pay taxes or not dump wastes somewhere. 
Alternatively, they would view positive freedom as kind of being in excess. Like now you're saying that everyone has the right to do different things, like the right to consume some of society's production. And they consider that too, they think that would involve too much authoritarian government or, uh, you know, inev inevitable encroachment on other areas of freedom. And for those reasons, they're usually more antagonistic to positive uh, freedom in these kind of uh, parameters. And so uh, in Milton Friedman's book, he sort of takes freedom to mainly mean negative freedom. And he explores the how capitalism keeps you free from the power of big institutions, which, of course, is the stupidest argument ever. So, Frank, so in my view, the conservatives, yes, they accept that capitalism doesn't provide positive freedom in most circumstances, but it does provide negative. My book's argument is it doesn't provide either because we're subject to big corporate and capitalist power plays all the time. Absolutely. And one of the other things I think that comes through as you kind of walk through some of these arguments or some of these ideas is the fact that well, of course, capitalists would be inclined towards negative freedom, right? Because negative freedom really kind of builds and legitimizes and, and, and buttresses their power and the power of capital, whereas positive freedom in some senses restrains that, doesn't it? Yeah, at least relative to that government policy action. And that usually is yeah, the default when they say you're free from... Uh, outside coercion, you know, the government forces you to pay taxes. And even when they concede that there are public goods, and of course, Friedman turns to national defense because he's you know, some Reaganite, it's the public good that he will accept. Uh, he says, yes, we, get to, we have a republic even, so we have something to say about what governments do and what they choose as far as policy and what resources to put into those policies. But once the government decides, you know, even as a republic, we all have to accept that. Whereas in the market, I can get my kind of pants I like and you can get the kind of pants you like. And it's always very facile examples like that. But that is how it's taken. Yeah, like the only authority that they can conceive of is that, yeah, governments or public sector. But surely uh, the arguments from uh, supporters of Friedman and, and Hayek and, and Mises and all of the libertarian giants, the, the argument is that without that, without that coercion from the state or other entities, without that coercion, you have the pure freedom, right? You have the freedom to choose. You could choose to work at a factory A, factory B, or not to work. You have the freedom to send your children to school or not send them to school. I mean, surely that's kind of the ultimate, uh, you know, apex of freedom, isn't it? Indeed. It, 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 it's, it sometimes is. That would be a fair characterization. What you discover uh, when you look into how you know, markets evolve over time is that, yes, sometimes they are richly competitive and you are free to choose because you have a variety of options and you have many sources for your local basic retail goods or places to go out and get a bite if you live in a decent-sized community. Yes, many markets are competitive and remain that way in the long run, even. However, as anyone with their eyes open can see, of course, often in markets, you are not incredibly super free to choose. To choose. And there's a number of reasons why, of course, and many of us you know, who are somewhat more politically left will be familiar with these. There are basic economies of scale 
the command firms and give them a strong survival incentive to get big and get profitable, which often means they grow faster than the market and they gain market share and become large, powerful institutions with a lot of influence over markets and price levels and a lot of money to put into shaping people's preferences and so on. Well, there we're very quickly toward models of big corporate oligopoly and getting pretty far away from this nice reassuring free to choose, which again applies in some circumstances, but it's just childish. I mean, if you learn anything about microeconomics, you learn that markets evolve in all kinds of directions because of the diversity of things that we make. You know, some things are utilities like electric power and water, which must come all the way to you through this huge expensive infrastructure grade. And so they end up being natural monopolies. And of course, we usually conservatives are willing to allow patent monopolies for people or institutions that have paid for research, which creates monopoly, of course. And other times you have these network monopolies, which is the case with our Silicon Valley firms. They mostly owe their huge growth to uh, network effects, as we call it in economics, where their service gains value as more people use it. All these things drive markets very strongly to, I mean, these days, oligopoly, because full monopoly is often legally challenging, not to say it can't be done, uh, but there are obstacles. Before we regulated this at all, like back in the late 18, uh, 19th century, you know, the Gilded Age, Rockefeller and Carnegie, capitalism was just monopolies in any kind of large, significant industry, oil, steel, cigarettes, the Wall Street cartel under Morgan. So Friedman can blithely insist, as he does in these books, that markets are competitive, cite a few examples that favor that, and then it's hand-waving, and he's, you know, he just blandly says private monopoly is not very important. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Hayek, in his book, for his part, uh, in Road to Serfdom, he says that uh, concentration is a, as I recall, it's a Marxist doctrine, I believe is what he says. Like, that may be true, Hayek, but it's still a fact. <laughs> Oh, it's interesting. You bring up you bring up Hayek, and I already mentioned Mises. I mean, these are the Austrian economists who kind of lend the name to the so-called Austrian school of economics, which is uh, highly influential on Milton Friedman and 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 others. And um, you mentioned Marx and 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 kind of Hayek saying his ideas in opposition to Marx. I think it's important to have a little bit of historical context here. Hayek is operating at a time when Marxism, Marxist thought, and socialism is very much ascendant. When his type of views, the far right economic views, which were in many ways kind of backed by the moneyed interests of Europe, including the royal houses and others, uh, that they were very marginal. They were extreme. And, and, and kind of seen as really kind of outlandish. Can you talk a little bit about the way in which Marx and socialism and socialist thought really kind of shaped and, and forced a reaction from Hayek and these other right-wing economists? Uh, that's interesting. And yeah, of course, that's uh, uh, always a major part of intellectual history is so much, you know, we think of ourselves as being like scientists in the social sciences and developing these ideas because they have their own logic and they're so compelling. But it seems like so often it's a reaction to what's happening politically at the time, like a lot. And of course, yeah, exactly back when Hayek was writing in the earlier 20th century, that's at a time when absolutely social Democrat, you know, nominally socialist political parties were, you know, very ascendant in certainly including Germany, like the greatest domestic economy and France and the Labour Party in Britain. Uh, and so very much the right felt it's under attack. And it's really never stopped feeling under attack, even in times like this when it's utterly dominant. <laughs> so that's definitely uh, a part of that story. And it's interesting, too, when you dig into this, um, I discussed this a little bit in Chapter 3 of the book, 
just the history of these characters when they were in the political wilderness and out of power, like in the New Deal period, you know, in the early Cold, Cold War era in Europe for the, as it were, neoliberal turn. In that era, like, they survived because of support from wealthy, but, you know, now more heavily taxed by the New Deal and the outrageous so, you know, European welfare state. Like, they survived because of support from, you know, more conservative, big, uh, you know, wealthy families and wealthy individuals who funded, you know, the Mount Perilin Society and uh, these related bodies and the research of uh, fellow travelers. It's uh, interesting enough. Yeah, like, the, most of my book is focused on just these ideas and letting the right have space to make their arguments. I feel like no one lets the, uh, the other side talk. So we let them come in and have their paragraphs. And then we look at why the arguments completely fall apart. So it is more of a somewhat intellectual approach but that history is fascinating absolutely and um it the reason i bring up the history is because it really does relate to a lot of the things that uh people on the left talk about throughout the 20th century whether you want to talk about uh the the importation of freedmanite policies and how that impacted u.s foreign policy in latin america and places like chile and elsewhere which were seen as a laboratory for a lot of these ideas right you see uh latin american dictatorships kind of following a lot of these models, much of the history of the 20th century and certainly of the uh, post-war 20th century is the history of the implementation of a lot of these ideas. Indeed, that's exactly right. And people, of course, like to use the phrase or the, the term neoliberalism for this, uh, you know, most recent era in economic history and policy. And people like to argue about whether that term is useful or if it's lost meaning and so on. I mean, I think it has a basic utility. But one thing I enjoy, uh, I think I mentioned this, this comes up early in the book, is uh, a little bit before uh, uh, the fi great financial crisis that we had almost 10 years ago now, uh, William F. Buckley, you know, the dean of conservative intellectuals uh, of that era, uh, wrote this article celebrating Milton Friedman, and he specifically says in this article that the period since Reagan's election, basically since 1980, he calls it the uh, age of Friedman economically. And I think that's really useful. Like that speaks to so much about what the neoliberal era is. Like it's it's the era where policy is shaped by Friedman and Hayek and their acolytes and the people further to the right who we also look at. Uh, but that's useful because I think yeah, neoliberalism, sure, because it describes such a broad set of social changes. You can make a legitimate point that it's lost some of its original, you know, investment and policy-based meaning. But uh, when you look at it as the age of the policies of Milton Friedman, which he happily describes as cutting taxes and deregulation and so on, uh, it becomes a lot more specific. And I think that's, some, in, in part at least, a useful way to think of the period. Well, there's no doubt. And um, the other the other aspect that I think is, is important in all of this is the fact that neoliberalism... Um, it has this kind of cachet as if it's, you know, the, the epitome of economic freedom, economic freedom on a macro scale. But again, if you, if you dig into it, all of the policies that we associate with neoliberalism and with neoliberal economics, they're heavily dependent upon the state. They're heavily dependent upon uh, state power to be able to enforce certain principles and to prevent certain uh, aspects from entering the market or affecting the markets and so forth. Can you talk about, for lack of a better word, the hypocrisy or, you know, the sort of uh, myopic view that a lot of the neoliberal worshippers take about the role of the state. Yeah, that's interesting, uh, because, of course, there is a range of views within, of course, you know, the right and conservatives or libertarian thought. 
And some of them are more hypocritical and some of them are more like consistent. And uh, I think that there's a lot to be seen there. So exactly, like figures like the ones who I'm mainly focused on, like you know, Friedman and Hayek, the ones who had the most sort of intellectual and policy impact, you know, cited by conservative heads of state, like Hayek got celebrated by Thatcher and Ronald Reagan recorded an introduction video clip for Milton Friedman's PBS special in, in which he misstates that Friedman has gotten the Nobel Peace Prize, which is incorrect. Uh, so obviously I kind of focus on them because they had the most impact, but I do like to talk also about the, sometimes they would say further to the right, the more consistent, or maybe you could say purist libertarian figures like von Mises and Rothbard of the Austrian school themselves. So there's, you know, there's that variety there. The main, I mean, your question is, yeah, absolutely. Friedman and Hayek, I mean, they're quite willing. They very quickly rationalize the biggest source of government waste, which is the military and intelligence state. They pass that over in less than sentences, in just a few words. But social security, oh, that's bankrupting us. So that fairly naked right-wing hypocrisy and just having a policy-based set of intellectual conclusions, you know, that's what I refer to in the book several times looking at these guys. I think you can't conclude anything but that they're opportunists. You know, they're looking, oh, this makes, this is an argument we can make because this looks bad. Or here, this sounds reasonable unless you think about it much. Like they're looking for opportunities to score points a lot with a popular audience rather than actually have a logic or be anywhere near the facts. But there is, yeah, some more pure strains, especially among libertarians themselves. Uh, I'm sure you have a few listening. Hi, guys. And uh, what you see there is, I mean, yeah, they are thinking about this and they take this issue seriously and they'll say, you know, we may value the contributions made to policy change by Friedman and Hayek, but they make a lot of uh, concessions to having government and accepting public goods as something that the authoritarian state should provide. Because, you know, again, people are too myopic to see the possibility of authoritarian corporations that have less accountability than the government does. And now we're handing them so much power with privatization. But if you look at these figures, like these are the ones uh, like, you know, Ayn Rand, to take someone who's prominent. Uh, you know, said we should, you know, we should have private roads for all purposes. Like the interstates should be privately owned, even though, of course, our railroads are privately owned and were deregulated in the 80s. And now we have four giant regional monopolists uh, running that industry. And I would expect something like that for the interstate system. It's how the cable networks work up also. So they're willing to accept that because of that, like you said, myopia. Then Rothbard uh, in particular uh, is one who's really celebrated on the sort of real libertarian uh, uh, sectors of uh, uh, popular opinion. He's considered to have a lot more integrity and he's really, he doesn't make compromises with statists and accept any kind of government. And he's all about toll roads and these kind of things. It's a very uh, arch conservative worldview and it has no, really no relevance to making actual policy because in fact, markets need government to operate. It's true. Like they need, with nothing else, they need a stable court system to enforce property rights and contract claims. Capitalists that's the thing they want more than anything else. And Rothbard says, we'll have private courts and people will go to the ones that they like the best. It's just completely fatuous. Indeed. And I want to return to Rothbard and, and uh, what, what I guess we could call anarcho-capitalism mm. in, a, in a little bit. But uh, before we do that, I just want to finish up the point about, um, and I, I don't want to say hypocrisy, but trying to understand from the perspective of Friedman and Hayek and people like that, uh, the, the, the way that it's rationalized, you know, the need for the state, because there is a clear 
and quite compelling argument for why the state uh, and, and the power of the state is necessary in order to execute their economic agenda. And that is, and this has been seen historically, because it is deeply unpopular. Because it is deeply hated by the majority of people who are negatively impacted by it. Obviously, the wealthy love it, but the majority of people aren't wealthy, and the majority of people hate it because it's a direct attack on their very survival. And we saw this over and over again with dictatorships in Latin America. And so a lot of the economic agenda that they put forward, it requires a strong authoritarian, if not fully dictatorial, government just to implement it. Indeed. And that's very, very much clearly the historical global record. Yeah. Uh, if you look at what's happening in Brazil, uh, or Turkey, I mean, so much, any country you want to look at around the world, it's, it's you, know, you know, elite corporate and state elements you know, pushing their neoliberal program. And that means privatizing services, cutting taxes, sure. But a lot of working people pay fairly modest taxes, especially in countries like the United States. And their, their tax reductions are far more modest, of course. And so what it ends up being is they get very small additions to their after-tax income, but now they're responsible for getting all these additional services in the market where they're produced by some borderline monopolist with a lot of pricing power, and they're just utterly priced out of the market. I mean, this is why so many people can't get health insurance in the U.S. and why charter schools are scary to so many people. Like, you're right. Like, there is that fear there because people realize, like, how will I get that on my own? People have enough... You know, the man on the streets, yeah, and regular families, they have enough of an idea of what their basic economic conditions are to know. If that's not provided to us through some state, you know, via our common tax collections, I'll never, we'll never afford that on our own. So, yeah, these policies are unpopular. Now, I tend to focus on the United States because, of course, that's where I'm from. And also because we are the country stopping change. That's been our, certainly our role since uh, the Second World War, right, is any time a regime or a country wants to go through some big transition to socialism or anything else, all we can do is demonize it to kingdom come, build up a big aid relationship with the military and run a coup or occasionally invade it directly. And so I tend to focus on the U.S. with this stuff in the framework that I discuss the issues in because I always feel like, sadly, to the world's misfortune probably, but we are the keystone. Like We have to develop a change and a willingness to accept non-neoliberal structures or the world's never going to be able to. <laughs> Absolutely. And in the United States, just like in many other parts of the world, um, there is a, a, an almost an implicit recognition from regular people that they have economic rights. But the reality is that the economic system uh, that is dominant doesn't really recognize those rights, or to the extent that it does, it, it really kind of recognizes only the most minimal of rights. So when you have people, whether it's in the United States or in a European, a developed European country or a less developed country in the global south, those people are going to react when their economic rights begin to be stripped away. And they may not frame it in those terms, but certainly when you see an attack on pension programs, when you see uh, you know a move to privatize uh, and obviously rate and consequence raise the price of electricity or water or things. I mean, we could point to a thousand examples throughout the global south where this has happened. People react to that. It, it forces a kind of social movement, social change, and it requires a dictatorship or an authoritarian government to prevent that from toppling this right-wing economic system. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, I mean, that pattern, we see that so so reliably. And yeah, it usually originates because, yeah, like you said, uh, foreign citizens are often a lot more 
resistant to having their basic public sector, you know, public goods, and what remnants of positive freedom that they have, they're resistant to having it stripped away. Maybe they're not as easily uh, persuaded as Americans. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and the strange thing is Americans, you know, they also feel that way. I mean, you look at the polls, 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10 people believe in Social Security and, and in maintaining and protecting Social Security, if not expanding it. They believe that people should be provided with health care, affordable health care. I mean, all of these things that you would call, quote-unquote, progressive policies – most people in the United States actually support them. It's the, let's say, the ideological uh, window dressing around it that really, I think, uh, kind of dissuades people from recognizing their own economic rights. And I think that is obviously deliberate by people like Friedman and their followers and descendants. Indeed. Yeah, if you look at policy issues, I mean, you know, on a lot of subjects, public opinion is way hilariously to the left of the political parties and certainly the national you know, commercial media. And it's, yeah, it's amazing how that's kind of stayed that way. I remember many years ago first getting interested in these issues and going, wow, yeah, there's a lot of support for public programs like Medicare and Social Security, oh, the minimum wage, uh, basic environmental and public health laws. Okay, those are very popular. And we've been slashing away at them ever since and constantly propagandizing against them on media. They remain pretty popular, like the polls, you know, the numbers move, but I mean, not like hugely. Like, it's interesting how the United States has remained, despite decades of arch capitalist propaganda and government, it's remained a social democratic, like, citizenry. I don't really understand it myself. <laughs> Yeah, it's a kind of an interesting phenomenon, and I'm going to return to that in the second half of our conversation because I want to relate it to some of our current political developments. But there's a lot more to talk about on the other side of the break, including media and how the media apparatus really fits into the framework of, uh, well, not only neoliberalism and neoliberal capitalism, but in what you've written in this book. So I want to talk about media. I want to talk about the future, and I want to talk about our current political situation. A lot more to discuss with Rob Larson. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Come back after the break and we'll continue. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes Saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about sufferer at all Joshua said One man have too many While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and ends Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sisters Socialism is people 
Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Rob Larson. Again, I couldn't possibly recommend the book any more highly. Capitalism versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Uh, very, very important book published by Zero Books. Get yourself a copy uh, pretty much anywhere you can get books. Uh, you know, all the usual all the usual places. Um, anyway, Rob, I want to return to where we kind of left off there before the break. In, in talking about, um, well, one particular aspect that you've already mentioned but is really central in all of this, and that's the media. Not only because the media is a way of disseminating a lot of the orthodoxy of uh, right-wing capitalism and anarcho-capitalism, neoliberalism, all these different ideas, it's a way of disseminating it, but it's also, in, in one sense, a shining example of a lot of these ideas in action. So let's begin there. Can you talk about the evolution of the media landscape in the United States in recent decades and how that is sort of the epitome of a lot of these ideas in action? Oh, for sure, yeah. And it's, you know, that's a major subject, of course. I mean, anyone can understand how media and information are obviously really crucial to what happens in the world. Uh, but in particular, uh, that industry, yeah, has gone through it was such an interesting evolution and people can't perceive its importance. I mean, just in the last, just in my own lifetime, just in the last couple of decades, I mean, the commercial media, you know, the TV news networks, the cable networks, you know, the uh, news and entertainment producing companies, they've gone through such a consolidation tsunami. It's, I mean, really amazing. Those firms, you know, back in the Bush era, we said by that time they had consolidated through various waves of government deregulation, especially the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which allowed all those uh, different kinds of telecommunications and media firms to start. The idea was they would start competing. But of course, what they started doing started merging because that's what happens in the real world of capitalism. You get big, you get profitable, you get more bargaining power and you know, with, with that market share. Uh, something that economists like Friedman and Hayek, who get Nobel prizes, prizes can't even imagine introducing into the conversation. But those are real incentives in the real dirty world of business and commerce. So those firms have gone through such a merger wave; it's amazing. And just lately, just in the last several years, we're seeing this gigantic new phenomenon where the media companies, which by now are these large conglomerates with movie studios and cable content companies and TV networks and uh, huge publishing arms, of course, in periodicals and books. Uh, what they're doing now is those giant firms are merging with the telecom firms, the telecommunication companies like Comcast and uh, Charter that provide cable service to your house so you can watch cable TV or get internet that can then go through your Wi-Fi router. Uh, and merging also with those cell phone carriers, you know, like AT&T, Verizon, and so on. Now, so these giant media firms are bolting themselves on to these gigantic telecom monopolies for the cable companies and oligopolies for the cell phone firms. So these huge integrated entertainment information complexes and the justification they all give for it 
is the rising dominance of the Silicon Valley corporations like Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and so forth. So it's, I mean, it's it's such a perfect epitomizing of why this conservative or libertarian economic view is wrong. Like power in the market is extremely real, and firms will merge to kingdom come to main to gain or maintain marketplace bargaining power. So, I mean, that to me, if you look at that record at all, and I just briefly look at it in the chapter two of the book, it's it's very difficult just to look at those basic business transactions, which are all on the record. No one considers them to be controversial in their details. Uh, if you look at those, it's amazing that these guys can continue wielding the beliefs that they've got on the far right. Well, that's that was actually my next question. So how do they square this circle? I mean, they can't just completely ignore the entire history of the 20th and early 21st century when it comes to uh, economic, uh, you know, the economic evolution of the global system. So how do they square the circle between their beliefs in deregulation, creating choice and increasing freedom and, and the actual record uh you might be surprised at the amount of ignoring that can be done it's a, it, it's you know when you're you know when, when you're writing your book and you don't have the ethics to quote the other side at length as i do in my book it's always well the left says this and socialists say this and of course then it's some hilarious parody of what someone on the left thinks if you're willing to not quote people at the word and then you go on news channels where you won't be confronted with opposing questions let alone articulate opponents of the other side the amount of ignoring you can do is, is, is a lot. So I wouldn't, I would, at least, I would at least acknowledge how much there is there, but you're right. Like there is some finessing that has to be done, but the, again, just the hand waving, it's just so like one thing I like to point out is that capitalism and freedom, you know, which I was told to read when I was a young leftist on campus as a, uh, a young person, that was what, you know, the business MBA students I knew would say, read this book, man, you're saying a lot of stuff. You should learn the reality. That book has like nine footnotes in the whole thing. I think I think there's like 14 footnotes in the entirety of the book. And several of them are like references to one or two articles that he's quoting from. And sometimes they're just little explorations on a subject. His, you know, Free to Choose has a little bit more there. But when you realize reading that book, it's just like a list of demands. He just insists on this and insists on this. And there's no outside evidence. There's no like, you know, independent reporting. There's no other figures that can like corroborate something speaking against interest. It's just a list of demands <laughs> that are presented to you. So and, and, and in that format, then, I mean, yeah, there's a point where he says, so how do we keep like Friedman at one point refers to some monopolies, uh, particular to the, that time in the 60s. It says, how do we deal with the, these possible abuses of the market? Well, do we want to have a bigger budget for the Federal Trade Commission suing our American companies for being monopolies? No, we should take down trade barriers, because, of course, the Reagan era, and we should uh, globalize the economy and let them compete. And, of course, what's happened since then is global, global merger waves <laughs> are gigantic on a far larger scale. But it's all but just with that kind of simple insistence, man. I mean, yeah, like the way these things get rationalized, it's easy if you don't have opponents that you'll have to encounter on Fox or quote. Well, one of the one of the things that uh, I often encounter, and I will admit, you know, there was a time uh, years and years ago when I encountered a lot of these issues, and I read up on these things. I read uh, Friedman, I read Hayek, I read um, uh, Ayn Rand, I read Murray Rothbard, and um, one of the one of the central ideas that that I think 
at least in their minds, justifies a lot of these uh, concepts is the idea of self-preservation. Namely, that when something privatized, whether it's a road or a school or a river or whatever it may be, that the person who owns it has a vested interest in maintaining it, in expanding it, in growing it, in, in preserving it, etc. That this idea of self-preservation really is kind of at the heart of a lot of, uh, you know, the economic prescriptions that they have, but it's complete and utter bullshit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, sadly it is. And that's exactly right. Like, that's what the right will say if you bring up the environment to them. They'll say, well, of course, there's some small environmental problems. They're obviously not very scientifically familiar or they would take the issue more seriously. They'll say, yeah, sure, there are problems in these areas. You know, we pollute streams and so on. That's bad. So if somebody owned that stream, we wouldn't have pollution. If, if that was owned by someone who had an interest in maintaining it and protecting the resource, then we wouldn't have pollution and externalities, you know, where people can inflict damage on others because then it would be owned by someone who's in interested in it and they would take legal action or the like. So those are the kind of exactly sort of policy suggestions or uh, you know, uh, proposals that you get from people on the uh, farther right, yeah, who want to privatize more natural resources. But of course, yeah, it's friggin' ludicrous. It's amazing these people can say this with a straight face. The reality is, especially in this era of deregulated finance, people want a short to near-term return on their asset. You can make you know, a couple million bucks on something very quickly or make some thousands of dollars every year for the rest of your life. As soon as Wall Street or some hedge fund or some investor gets a hold of it, they use, do whatever they can do very quickly to get money from it and then try to strip themselves of the asset. I mean, it's just amazing to me. If this was true, then you wouldn't have any polluted private property. And that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Do these guys not, not know what Superfund sites are? You know, the Superfund law you know, was what the term they used for some 1970s environmental legislation that says if you're a company and you do a huge amount of polluting, it's possible for us to use this law to say, hey, you have to pay some of the costs of cleaning it up. And of course, the taxpayers will carry the rest. And when there's some money in a fund that they call the Superfund sites, like those are some of the most unbelievably polluted locations on the surface of the earth. You know, many of them are public property. Many are on private property. They're, you know, mines or you know, harbors that firms were happy to just dump waste into liberally for many decades. Uh, it's amazing to me that people can say that stuff with a straight face. But yeah, of course, you'll have an interest in maintaining it until you can make some capitalist profit off it at the end of the quarter to get your stock price up. These guys don't realize how natural resources work and how they can only be exploited a certain limited amount without degrading them each year that you go over that limit. These people are capitalists. They read business magazines and blogs about how smart right-wing people are. They're not reading anything about ecology or what we're learning about how these resources actually, yeah, you have to treat them with respect or they collapse like they have through our whole history. The amount of ignoring that these guys do is, my God, that's a book unto itself. <laughs> Indeed. Now, the... the other word that you often come across, um, well, among many, but the, the term that you come across a lot in, in the justifications for these ideas is efficiency, right? That, that uh, the market and uh, private uh, capital is simply more efficient than the government. It might be more efficient in building a toll road versus a publicly uh, owned road. It may be more efficient in maintaining a water supply or what have you. Um, 
well, A, obviously the record on that uh, indicates otherwise, and B, the very premise of it, I think, is flawed. Can you talk a little bit about efficiency and uh, how efficiency is sort of used or weaponized by those on the right who espouse these ideas? Oh, man, absolutely. I mean, a lot of bar- a lot of bodies are buried in the idea of uh, right-wing efficiency. So, yeah, I'd like a lot to take apart there. Yeah, so the, when conservatives want to privatize things, which we do constantly, uh, they'll suggest it'll be more efficient on the marketplace. Uh, you know, we should realize what that means. I mean, efficient in this context means, you know, it'll cost less. That's within the question if you strip down services and you know, reduce how many trips the bus takes to serve people who are working third shift and increase class sizes for students, you know, the effects of that don't become clear in any economic statistics or maybe they do far later. So that's a great way to make them more efficient on paper because they cost less because we made them shittier. <laughs> like that's a classic conservative play, of course. But also what efficiency means here, again, is interesting. Like by this rationale, this is how companies justify. Uh, this is how they justify in court when they, they get sued for uh, merging and becoming oligopolists or monopolists. When these guys want to merge and the Justice Department's antitrust division goes after them and says you shouldn't be allowed to merge, they've got the law now so that they can show it's economically efficient and that it won't lead to any necessarily any price increases for consumers. Antitrust law allows for those mergers to go through even if they create larger, more powerful firms. Like market power specifically is not what antitrust is adjudicated on. It's adjudicated on whether this is likely to lead to, lead to price increases. So this is why Amazon is allowed to buy anybody because they are in a stage of their history where they want to increase prices. But it means, yeah, like if uh, two firms merge and they use economies of scale and they lay off one of their human resources departments and so on, like, well, that's efficiency. But also means we're closer to having a giant monopoly again. Like you don't want Rockefeller to run the economy, like even if it's incredibly efficient, like it's also a dictatorship. And that's maybe kind of what you were thinking of, too, for the other part of it is efficiency is not the only social value we get. Like access is important. If we make the schools more efficient by making it harder for poor people to get their kids into them. Like, great, that's an efficiency gain at the cost of something else that we also value. So it's definitely a, there is some putting efficiency on a pedestal. Like if a government does something slightly less efficiently than the market does, even on some, you know, on a more leg, on a fully legitimate basis of evaluating that, there may still be reasons for wanting it in the public sector. Maybe that keeps it more under popular control rather than some investor's control, you know. So absolutely, there's, uh, uh, that, that comes up very frequently. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and just as you were talking about it, you know, I was just thinking of an example in, in, that I've come across just in my life, right? In, in living When I was living in Brooklyn, you know, you drive on the BQE, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which has been under construction literally since the end of you know, the 50s, basically. Um, and uh, you look at a lot of these, uh, you know, unionized uh, public, public employees that are out there working construction, and it looks terribly inefficient. You, you, you think to yourself, you know, one can one can understand why someone would say well this is so inefficient if we didn't have the union there protecting all of these lazy ass workers then this would get done but then you think about okay so let's assume that were true what would actually happen 
non-unionized workers would be brought in at much lower wages. They would be forced to be uh, unable to provide for their families in the same way, which would then have a social cost, which would then trickle down and have a knock-on effect on a number of things from maybe health services or education or what have you. So these things are all interconnected, and, and that sort of interconnectedness, I think, is what is obviously and rather consciously ignored by the far right. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I mean, yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable. And and that Roku thing is uh, especially interesting. I'm always amazed how much people are willing to go, oh, look, those Roku workers don't work very hard. They should work harder. And it, the person saying it to me is always some office worker who gets up three times in a day in an air-conditioned setting. Yeah, it's exactly. like, yeah, they should really work. They don't know what it's like to really work like you do, Candace. Totally. Holy cow. So that's, you know, that's interesting. But uh, exactly. especially, it's, it's amazing how much the United States people have uh, that class consciousness just driven out of them to the extent that, yeah, like they're openly saying like other working stiffs like me should be paid less and those people should be laid off so that the labor market will be looser and more unfavorable to me. It's amazing uh, how little thought people give to that. And it, again, it's, I mean, that's the type of thing that people react to though, right? Yeah, is they'll see something and go, ah, I understand this. That's inefficient. Well, corporations hide their efficiency inefficiency from us by cranking up drug prices so some people can't afford to get it or pushing up health insurance premiums so people can't afford to get it or having such invasive privacy standards on social media that some people are too scared to use it. Like those are real legitimate social inefficiencies too, but that's not stuff that's in front of our faces and that's not stuff that we're going to be collecting statistical data on uh, on any kind of public basis. So there's plenty of inefficiency that they uh, keep out of public eye. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, they don't ever want to talk about the inefficiency of all those who have died, because that certainly makes it more efficient when somebody dies and they no longer cost anything. Um, now, speaking of uh, people being killed by policies, I think it would be uh, in, uh, I think, relevant and important to talk a little bit about the orange beast in the White House currently and uh, what this means and how it relates to some of these ideas in the book, because there's something rather interesting happening with Trump and the Trump administration, because in, in some ways, the Trump administration is the perfect embodiment of this sort of right-wing, neoliberal, Friedmanite, you know, deregulate everything kind of mantra. You see that in terms of all of the deregulation of environmental issues, allowing companies to dump chemicals into our streams or to dump waste, uh, you know, into wherever and, and so forth and coal plants and all of the rest of that, we see all of this deregulation that's being done by the Trump administration. And so you'd say, well, obviously, they're just Friedmanites. And then at the same time, quite literally at the same time, Trump is talking about these tariffs and starting a trade war and protecting U.S. industries and all of this other nonsense, which, of course, is completely ineffectual and totally absurd the way that he's doing it. But it does raise an interesting question. Do we have almost a, a, a kind of a paradoxical or, or, or schizophrenic type of ideology in power at the moment? Well, it definitely doesn't fit neatly to any of the previous slots we've been working with. But that, I mean, this this is what happens you know, politically is people get weird different varieties of beliefs and they smush them into other things. I mean, this is the United States, you know, Catholics use birth control here. This country lives a la carte and everything it thinks. So that's to that part to me isn't so surprising. But yeah, it is a bizarre regime. You know, it's very far right and it remains, I mean, you know, it's it's neoliberal at least halfway. Like it still loves 
cutting taxes on the rich and even more nakedly than before. Like our middle class tax cuts will be retired after three years, but those corporate tax cuts are permanent for the very, very wealthiest part of our society that owns all that corporate stock. So that's pretty, and obviously incredibly aggressive on deregulation, so much so that business doesn't like it. Like the car industry thinks that Trump is charging so far on uh, cutting fuel efficiency standards that they're going to end up fighting it in court and that the states are going to end up with different uh, requirements, which is not what the industry wants. Uh, so like, so that's aggressively deregulating if you're going faster than even what industry <laughs> demands. Uh, so very far right. But then, yeah, like starting a trade war. And I mean, this people underestimate this like this trade wars. We haven't had these things you know, in my lifetime, certainly, and not in the lifetime of many of, uh, your, of your listeners, I'm sure, because of the so that the utterly dominant ascendance of global trade. Uh, certainly after World War II, when the Depression era tariffs come down and then through the GATT and WTO processes that we're so familiar with, of course, on the left, uh, dealing with the ramifications of them. That's always been part of the neoliberal vision. So what you're seeing with this regime is a only partial comportment, like like overdoing some of the neoliberal policies, like the tax cuts and the deregulation, and then walking away from some of the other parts, like the international trade, which again has been, that's core in neoliberalism. That's how you undermine worker bargaining power anywhere and the ability of governments to collect tax anywhere is to allow companies to just whipsaw one nation against another in terms of where they're going to domicile, let alone invest and actually build a business up or create employment or production. So it's a baffling regime, but because the man at the center of it is such a, you know, buffoonish, buffoonish, racist, confessed serial sex assaulter, uh, he just consumes media attention. That's why he was able to win with a lower advertising budget than Clinton, campaign budget than Clinton, was because he got, in, in, the, in the estimation of many, many millions of dollars in free airtime, because people can't stop looking at what horrible, heinous, provocative thing he's done or said today. And many of these things are becoming real human rights violations, too. I'm not saying we should try to stop paying attention to what's going on there. You know, the issue with separating children at the border has become a national human rights disgrace, as it should. But also, it's just, there's no oxygen left after idiots talk about that guy. So I'm uh, always eager to try to keep it on policy, because as soon as you start focusing on that, on that new regime, even if, like we're doing, we're focused on the policies, people are, as soon as possible, going over to some goofy hack media take about, well, who knows what he's going to say, or I'm very worried about Russia and these tiny crumbs of Russian influence. Uh, my God, the things we focus on that are so trivial. <laughs> well, and, and part of the reason we focus on it is not because of their importance, but because it is the dominant narrative put forward by a an oligarchy that is our media, as we talked about earlier. I, I think that if we had actual uh, choice in the media landscape where we didn't have two or three companies that really dominate the entire landscape and, and really kind of not only set the agenda, but in many ways write the script that all of the, the, the teleprompter readers end up putting into our brains, well, then maybe we wouldn't be focusing on the personalities and we might have more uh, attention paid to the policies. So that's, I, I think, a, a, a real-world uh, translation or product of this ideological you know, subservience to uh, neoliberal capitalism. Oh, no doubt. I think, yeah, like I said, yeah, I think there's a lot of, of crucial aspects there. And absolutely, that's, uh, that media part of it fits into it crucially here as well. 
So um, before we before we can close our conversation, I want to talk a little bit about um, you know the latter parts of the book because I think it's uh, it's it's really uh, critical that people understand that this is not this is not simply a book that examines ideas and and breaks them down so that you can understand them. It then translate those ideas into the impact for the future, which I think is important. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the ways in which which you approached how these ideas impact future generations. Oh, sure. Yeah, I feel like this is something that people definitely need to pay more attention to. And they are just in another form. Yeah. So if you you look at through our economic history, certainly before capitalism, but definitively since then, our history is environmental destruction. You know, we can we consume environmental systems that we don't understand and we use them heavily for whatever human purpose we have. Maybe it's building our civilization up and making important goods and services, or maybe it's to make ships to burn down the neighboring country or something. Whatever purpose, we use those resources aggressively. And our strong history is driving species to extinction, destroying biomes, uh, the legacy of that from deforesting the Mediterranean to turning East Asia into so much space over to food and rice cultivation. Like the legacies of those environmental changes are like fairly, fairly enormous. And they're so transformative, we don't even realize what the world used to look like before we started building a civilization out of its uh, natural production. So what that means, of course, is that you know, just like we today are not free to look at how, for example, uh, North America, where I am, uh, used to look. We're not free to explore that original habitat, except for a few tiny fragments in parks. Uh, likewise, future generations are going to have a... On this, at this rate, they're going to have a significantly reduced freedom to a significantly reduced positive freedom to experience the natural world and to encounter the beautiful plant animal species that make up you know, the parts of the biome that we're most enchanted and fascinated with and that we have our spiritual connections with and that we use to build up so much of our human understanding and lore and medicine even. Uh, those things are being lost and there has not been any uh, lost, you know, decrease in the rate of global deforestation and habitat fragmentation overall. So in chapter four of my book, I just take up what this means as far as trying to understand markets, our modern economic system, of course, capitalism, and how it is a, an iteration of this process and what that means for future generations uh, in terms of their freedom and the environment. And I use the year 2100 uh, for my uh, work on this because if you keep up with the scientific literature on this at all, what you see is that you know scientists, like anyone else, they use simple b- benchmarks to establish you know some period of time that they want to try to anticipate what's going to happen in. And so the end of the century is a commonly used benchmark. So I just look at, based on what the scientific literature is saying, looking at scientists and their research now, what are they anticipating will happen to the environment by the year 2100? And again, it's projecting into the future. So these scientists are usually very cautious, conservative in their conclusions, people. Uh, But take a look at it. I mean, they have a range of conclusions and they explain what they're based on. Uh, They're all pretty rough uh, from just the IPCC and its anticipation for future temperatures, humidity and sea level rise. And again, that institution tries to be conservative in its projections, as they say, those are pretty rough for the end of the year, uh, for the end of the century. And the more recent research, of course, suggests that it's the higher end of the IPCC projections that we're seeing. I guess looking at what's happening with our environmental laws, I suppose people won't wonder. But uh, looking at this, this means that in the future, I mean, there are going to be so many people in the earth 
who can't live where their people have always lived anymore on like a large basis, you realize that people in the, we don't know what the migration crisis is yet. When people start leaving the areas most expected to be impacted, which as it happens are the areas of the world that are already most poor and ravaged by colonialism for centuries, you know, those areas are going to have an X flow, an outflow of population that is going to be horrible. Like I was reading a paper where uh, some climatologists are anticipating that by 2100, the area around the Persian Gulf will be uninhabitable outdoors during the summer. That is a apocalyptic development. And again, that's a projection. Maybe it'll take a little longer to get there, or maybe it'll happen a little sooner. You know, this is what happens when we're anticipating the future. But who can hear just, I mean, these are scientists who we rely on to fix our heart problems and make planes that carry us around the world in hours. We trust them for everything else. They're saying that in the future, like in the not too distant future, other people alive now will be alive then. They're going to experience this. Like if that's not a decrease in people's freedom, and if the ability to make this happen, as Rex Tillerson and other energy executives have had that ability, if that's not power over people, you know, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And it's no joke what you're saying. I mean, I, I when you say 2100, I have to remind myself, my son will most likely be alive in 2100. I mean, he'll be in his, he'll be in his 80s, but he'll be alive. He'll have grandkids yeah. by that point. Um, so it's not really that far away. Indeed. Yeah. And, you know, I have young relatives, too, you know. And frankly, what's, what's projected within our own lifetimes isn't uh, quite so pretty at the latter stages either, pal. But just to mention that. But certainly, like our kids, and above all, like the grandkids, you know, of today, like those, it's rough what the scientists think is going to happen. I'm amazed too. I mentioned this in the book how everyone's suddenly a scientist when it becomes about the environment and climate change. Every young dude, contrarian libertarian, is suddenly, well, I'm a big believer in self-adjusting systems, and I'm skeptical of this climate change. I'm a skeptic. Oh, you're really you're a skeptic? Suddenly, you little shithead. Suddenly, you. Usually some young person, you know, who's just a product absorber their whole lives, you know, wearing clothes and they don't check the label to see where it's from, using a phone that they don't understand even one component out of 200 of, eating food they didn't grow, benefiting from services their parents paid for. And then it's like, well, scientists are saying we may have to change the energy system and tax rich people to do it. We'll have to employ people, though. Oh, scientists, I think you liberals, it's, it's a liberal China hoax. Like suddenly everyone's a scientist. It drives me a little bit bonkers. Like I came up in the hard sciences. My undergrad is in biology. And I mean, you know, it's just an undergrad degree, but it does get, it's a valuable education in what ideas are and what counts as an argument and why the sciences basically deliver the goods. I mean, there's a reason that big institutions like militaries and governments and corporations are willing to support the sciences. They're expensive, you know, they, they're costly. But they do it because science gets the goods and it can lead to real advantages for an institution to have some cutting edge science, scientific research being done. But as soon as it's something inconvenient or that says the free market isn't perfect for eternity, keeping our society great, people suddenly can't hear. It. And that is one particular thing that does uh, get under my skin a little bit, because after all, uh, we rely on those guys for everything. Those men and women of the sciences to make our parents pacemakers, to making our super fun smartphones, to making our birth control pills so we can have modern, fun lifestyles. God bless all those things. I'm saying you have to listen to them when they have bad news, too. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> ah, damn it. 
The other, the, the, the last thing that I wanted to touch on, and there's so much I wanted to say in response to what you just said, but I'm going to leave that for another time. <laughs> um, I want to just close our conversation with the final chapter of the book, which I really think is, um, in many ways, it's, it's probably the, it, you know, could be the most important. And that's, uh, you know, envisioning alternatives. And, and you kind of get into some of this. Obviously, there's probably a lot more uh, ground to cover and, you know, for a whole other book. But can you just give us a little bit of a, of a flavor of that final chapter and envisioning alternatives to this system and why those alternatives are so important? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, last chapter of the book is uh, something I was very happy to write. It's socialism and freedom <laughs> as my final uh, parting shot in the book. I uh, uh, invert the title of Friedman's book there. And yeah, exactly. It's looking at what we can say about different ideas. Because again, just like freedom and liberalism and neoliberalism, socialism as a political term includes a lot. Like people will put you know, a mild social democrat like Bernie Sanders in that and the Soviet Union and, you know, libertarian socialists. Like there's so much space there. You have to be, you know, careful and dig into these ideas in some detail. So I look at what we can say about those different socialist traditions and the ideas of freedom, right? Negative freedom from and positive freedom to. And of course, people will say socialism, you know, it's people expect equality as one of the main goals of socialism, which is true. And that's why socialism is so associated with the positive view of freedom. Right. If a child being born in the United States, if we expect that child to have a right to something like a proportionate share of the national income for one human, you know, then that would be a positive freedom view because we see them as having a right to that. Right. And this is why the conservative right is so antagonistic to positive freedom, because it means things like redistribution and at least approximate equality of wealth. So that's there. But the big question, of course, is whenever people hear about this, they start thinking, yeah, well, how are you going to avoid some socialist entity, be it a government or whatever? How will you keep them from having power over us? How do we maintain our negative freedom in this process? That's always everyone's fear, you know, is some totalitarian Soviet shit coming out of this. Well, this is where we need to look at what the ideals of socialism really are. And if you look at the history of it, like it's not all, you know, Marxist concepts and so on. It's, socialism has a long history and it's interesting uh, the core idea is always worker control of production. Worker, When you go to work, you have access to the information that management usually keeps to itself. And you and your co-workers are, would, want, would sit and make a plan and discuss and figure out what you want to do as far as running the business, what you should produce, what the economy is in need of. And you'll need to work with the other firms or the other production settings that make the inputs for your business or that process your own outputs so people can use them. And you'll need to federate, you'll need to have association. And this is where today's modern telecommunication technology, which is so convenient and is letting you and me have this uh, conversation in reasonable fidelity right now with pretty cheap equipment, <laughs> at least on my end. Uh, that huge has real potential to enable this kind of workforce active participatory control. Now, of course, it takes a lot of organization to run a whole economy. There are real issues of how we do economic planning and keep that representative, but still allow communities to have some say. So this is usually why figures like me, especially folks who come out of the scientific background, we always recommend an experimental approach. You know, it takes time to figure out how you can balance, you know, the need for responsiveness to the workplace versus the need for national some sort of some sort of overall at least industrial level of planning to keep goods and services flowing through production chains so we can all maintain our access to food and electricity and so on those are issues that we can't probably just 
balance with a, a thought experiment necessarily. You may need to screw around a little bit. Okay, this worked great. This didn't work so well. Like these are how we learn. This is how we learn from social experimentation. Now, of course, whenever in history, whenever a country tries to do something like that, the United States or whichever country is dominant in the region where that is tried comes in and propagandizes against it and terrorizes investors so the money flees the country, build up a relation with the military and overthrow it maybe. It's very difficult to do this without the change starting in those parts of the world that push other countries around, like the United States, Europe, China, like countries like that that are big regional hegemonic powers. It kind of has to begin there. And of course, that's a classic sort of Marxist idea of change in the metropole. But that experimental approach and trying to base it on a free federation of workers deciding what happens in their workplace, like that's sort of the conception of socialism that I find is most related to freedom. I've got a lot of socialist thinkers that I look at in that chapter and look at how they conceptualize you know, these needs for participation and that need for freedom versus other you know, legitimate economic goals like efficiency of production and keeping uh, supply chains going. There's a lot to say about that, but we have a rich tradition of socialist thinkers who are interested in freedom and preserving it and just having a way of uh, – producing goods and giving us a reasonable standard of living that we are in control of rather than Jeff Bezos and which leaves our, you know, our grandkids looking at a future that they'll be happy about instead of one that's, uh, I mean, you know, looking nightmarish right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we're going to have to leave it there, although there's plenty more to discuss with Rob. Um, I highly recommend the book, of course, uh, that we've been talking about, Capitalism versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom from Zero Books. I think it's... Um, a really important book, and, and as I said at the beginning of our conversation, it's really timely because a lot of these ideas, they are being translated into policy and they're being fought out, um, you know, even within activists, you, activist communities, right? You do find a lot of this stuff. I saw it at Occupy and I see it today a few years later. So I want to thank uh, Rob for writing the book and for giving us kind of a, a, a framework for examining these issues. I would also recommend uh, Rob's previous book, Bleakonomics, definitely worth a read. Uh, follow Rob on Facebook, follow him on Twitter, at Ironic Professor. You will find that he tweets and wears corduroy and much more about him on Twitter. Rob, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Really appreciate Word. it. And word to your mother and word to the mothers of our audience as well. And thank you again, as always, for listening, and I will chat with you again real soon.